thank you for joining us once again for Practically Ranching. This is episode 13, and I am very lucky, if you will, to have my friend Kurt Hogan as this week's guest. I first met Kurt over 20 years ago when my wife Amy introduced us at the uh, American Royal Barbecue Contest in Kansas City, where I think Kurt was competing on a team. And following that, Amy and I and Kurt and his wife, Kate, got to uh, hang out several times while we all lived in that Kansas City area. As our families have grown, we've stayed in touch with Kurt and Kate and have gotten to visit them while they lived in Denver and now Atherton, California. And through the years, they've been one of those families that have just helped me connect the dots between agriculture and the rest of the world. Kurt and Kate have been very successful in their lines of work in the business consulting arenas. They've traveled all over the world. And as far removed as they would seem to the unknowing person, as far removed as they would seem from agriculture, every time we get the opportunity to have dinner with Kurt and Kate and after a bottle or two of wine, uh, the conversation always migrates back to production ag. And they are full of questions and they're full of ideas. And, and these are two people who get it, who see that there is a hungry world and that that world is depending on folks who are out there toiling away every day on America's farms and ranches to help feed it. And they want to make us better and they want to find ways that their lives can help our lives and hopefully vice versa. You know, we in agriculture, I think, often talk about and maybe even dwell upon the fact that there is a disconnect, frankly, between the, the one and a half percent of the U.S. population who grows the food and the rest who, who consume it. And every time I get this opportunity to talk with someone like Kurt Hogan, I'm reminded that it doesn't have to be that way. There are plenty of people out there who recognize just how valuable having a, a safe, wholesome food supply here in the United States is, and they appreciate that. In this episode, Kurt and I talk about a lot of pretty deep things. Uh, we talk a lot of data. We talk a lot of technology. Uh, we talk blockchain. We talk rural broadband, which Kurt, I think, appropriately terms the roads and bridges and the infrastructure of our generation. But um, we hit a lot of techie stuff here, especially for a cowboy from the Flint Hills. Some of it may be a little less practical to our daily lives, but I think all of it has some merit as we go forth and as we find ways to produce food and fiber in the most effective ways that we can. And as we see labor challenges and as we see the constraints uh, that, that all of us are under, I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom in what Kurt has to say. And, and I think a lot of opportunities for us to implement some of the thoughts and ideas as we go forth and, and just keep our eyes open of ways to, to best do the business going forth. So once again, as always, thank you for joining us. And I uh, look forward to our conversation here with Kurt Hogan. All right. Well, welcome to Practically Ranching, Kurt. I appreciate you jumping on here with us. How are things in Northern California? They're great, Matt. Thanks for having me. We're into, uh, we're into the hottest month of the year and kids are getting ready to go back to school. So things are good here. Are they still playing water polo or are they on break or is there ever a break from sports? Yeah, you, you nailed it. There's 
uh, it seems like our kids are at that age to where there's never a break. And uh, in, the, in the crazy world of water polo, they've been traveling quite a bit. And, and so we finally have them both at home. And now they're starting up with, with school here next week. And with that, the water polo season here is in the fall. So they're, they're going at it strong. I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, we're on the same schedule, but we're substituting cross country and volleyball for the pool and water polo and probably not near at the level that that your kids are at but yeah same scenario here hot and kids aren't ready to go back to school but i think the parents maybe are (laughs) yeah we, we certainly are we're looking forward to outsourcing the kids back to school Yep. Well, if you would give me a little history uh, about your time in Kansas and what took you from there to the uh, Silicon Valley, and then we'll dig deep in in a few other topics that are uh, related to that path. Yeah, happy to. I grew up in, as you know, southwest Kansas. I was number five of five kids on the farm, so the little ankle biter. and uh, one of those. Exactly. (laughs) And so the, the farm was about 15 miles northeast of, of Spearville, Kansas. And so my, my dad, my uncle had a family farm there and ranch and you know raised wheat, milo, corn, those sorts of things, I think pretty typical for Southwest Kansas. Uh, and also had a, a cow-calf operation where they, where they raised Hereford and Angus Cross. And so our summers were spent really at a, a mix of farming and, and tending with the cattle. And, and we'd oftentimes also you know, pick up and pasture some sears over the summer, as well as pick up some bucket calves. And so my summer job was, was all the way up until college was, was really my full-time job. And that was working on the farm or, or working with the cattle. Yeah. So that took me all the way through high school and then jumped over to a small college nearby in Sterling, Kansas. And there I had an opportunity to play some sports and then also majored in uh, computer science and math before I, I moved on to Kansas City and, and took a job. And really, you know, the path from there to Silicon Valley, I sort of had this slow migration west. I started with a consulting firm in, in Kansas City, and, and we, we spent uh, a number of good years there and enjoyed the barbecue and, and just the people and, and that whole area. And over time, ended up doing some work in Denver. And so my wife and I moved to Denver, and, and we had the opportunity to, to live and work out of Denver. And while we were there, we, you know, we had an opportunity to do some local work, but also really quite a bit of travel. And so the, the sort of the sort of work I do uh, involves working with lots of large companies and and you know doing doing problem solving for these companies using technology. And so you kind of go where the problems are, and that meant that we were oftentimes traveling east or traveling west or overseas. And so over time, it made sense to get to a little bit larger market. And so we had to decide whether to move to the east coast or maybe overseas or the west coast. And and I had the opportunity to work a bit in Northern California in the past and loved the area and and so moved out here to northern california and have you know really spent the last 10 years home basing here so my slow migration westward that's great and and anybody who has listened to this podcast has heard me say time and again that um, quite often the most valuable product if you will that we produce on on farms and ranches in rural america is not corn wheat soy beef pork, any of the above, it is highly motivated, hardworking, knowledgeable, teachable kids. And I think you are a testament to that that exact theory. And, and we don't always keep them directly in agriculture, but we do always have a 
direct connection to them. And, I, and that's that's one reason that you're on this podcast and, and of course, your professional knowledge of, of systems and of, of networks and of computers. I think there's a lot of application that maybe some of us out here in the hills don't think about on a daily basis, but I, I look forward to visiting about some of those things. Now, before we get too deep into this, I have to tell you that as my mom and dad listen to this podcast, I'm going to guess that Tom Perrier, my father, is going to be pretty envious because growing up as a kid in the 80s, I've often said that my parents weren't totally certain if they wanted any of us kids to uh, return to the farm or ranch, I think, some days because they knew how tough it was as we were growing up and we remembered it well. And when I went off to college, actually, even before that, when I was in third grade, I was in trouble a lot in Mrs. Mariani's third grade class. And finally, I think she got sick of reprimanding me and keeping me in from recess for acting out and pulling the kid's hair in front of me or whatever. And she sent me upstairs to a TRS-80 computer that for whatever reason, the title program in Eureka, Kansas had purchased. And she gave me a paperback, it may have been a hardcover book that said, programming and basic or something like that and I remember sitting up there for what seemed like hours on end by myself I don't think anybody was even in the room (laughs) pecking away at this TRS-80 computer and I had several other teachers along the way who I guess threw a lot of computers in front of me and so I think my dad always figured that I'd go and do something with math or computers and I did get I think I was one of the first people that I knew of at K-State to actually have an email address when I was a freshman or sophomore in 92 or 3 and got my first job off of an email that I found, which was kind of unique in 95 or 6. But I never really did anything with computers as far as the level that you are or any networking. But that that I'm sure mom and dad are thinking, you know, Matt, you you could have been Kurt Hogan if you would have just studied a little harder and, and stuck to it. Well, I'm, I'm sure my parents are are, are going to listen to this and think, uh, Kurt, you could have been Matt Perrier if you worked hard because I, I, I think they, they're, they think I'm crazy sometimes for how much we jump on a plane and what we do. But, you know, I'd never heard, I'd never heard you share that story. And the only thing I'd, I'd say there is, you know, maybe two things. One, I think we, we got our, we got a same start. You know, I, I picked up on computers because of some, some, some teachers who had an interest in my grade school and, and I had an opportunity to go play games on the computer when I got my homework done. And so that was an incentive to get my homework done and, 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 and type around on the computer, which, which led eventually to a career. And I think the second thing, just, you know, to your, to your comment around the Midwest and the product, you know, I see it time and time again out here, there'll be so many people that come from agricultural background or Midwestern roots, you know, who have the right cocktail and that cocktail is grit and integrity and hard work. And you'd be amazed at how many people from your neck of the woods and from the Midwest in general really carry those attributes through and, and are quite successful. And it's always, it's always fun to run into them. Well, you've, you've proven that there is value in that upbringing. And I continue to tell my kids that, you know, study hard, learn the information, find what you're passionate about, but don't forget what you learned growing up on a farm or ranch because those things are applicable regardless of of what you're going to do as a as a professional and as an adult and and uh, yeah you've proven that so 
you took us to how, to what got you to California. Tell us a little bit, and no, we don't need to get too far into the weeds, but tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've done professionally with those clients and those uh, folks that you've consulted with in terms of, of data and of management and, and just understanding the power of that data. Yeah, sure. You know, so maybe just just a 50,000 foot overview of what, you know, what I did as a consultant. Consulting comes in lots of different forms, but as you might suspect with comp sign math background, my focus has always been using technology and, and computers and, and processes associated with that to help businesses perform differently, right? And so in the early part of my career, you know, that would be, you know, working with large communications companies, telephone companies, probably the last 10 or 12 years, it's oftentimes working with large software companies or tech companies. And it's really working on a variety of problems that those those, those organizations might have. Maybe they want to better understand their customer, or maybe they want to be more efficient in their operations. Really, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of the problem sets that they have. But, but over time, what you see are these organizations increasingly looking and leaning on technology as a way to you know, make better decisions, be more efficient, serve their customers better, produce better products. You know, and I think one of the one of the hallmarks really of the last maybe 10 to 15 years is, you know, are these companies really looking at data as a as a tool or a lever to be able to increase business performance. And you know, it may it may seem like an intuitive thing, but you know, many of these organizations, especially the ones that have been around for a little while, you know, they they make decisions like like Many of us would have, you know, out on the, the, the family ranch, you know, intuition and, and how you learned it from, you know, from your, from your dad or your mom and, and in your life experience. And, and that's not at all a bad way to run a business, but, but many of these organizations have found that if you can successfully collect data and analyze data and then build that data into your decision-making process, over time, you make better decisions, and that leads to better business performance, which leads to more data, which allows you to make better decisions, and you know it kind of creates a loop. And so that's one of the areas, among among others, that's certainly been a focus point for for many of the organizations I've worked with, really, really in in most all industries. So as we talk about data and and using that instead of just that that gut feeling, that intuition, and sometimes I do think they have to go hand in hand, but we can overdo anything or take anything to extremes. But when we talk about data, I know a lot of times in agriculture and, and maybe even more in animal agriculture, that specifically the beef industry, there's a certain amount of pushback and a certain amount of anxiety and angst that that causes, whether that's warranted or not. But, you know, the fear of, of big brother and, and of big data and what have you seen that in other industries or are we just that far behind and that we hesitate to use that data for, for those management and those decision-making? Yeah, I, I, you definitely see it in most, most all businesses I work with, really in some degree, one way or the other. And I, and I don't think it's at all uncommon, you know, especially on agricultural operations. I mean, you've got a very entrepreneurial environment, which I think is a strength of ag and and there's a lot of sensitivity around your business and the steps that you take to drive your business. And I think that holds true with a lot of the organizations I've worked with. I think there's two things that really kind of kind of break that cycle. Number one, you know, I, there's organizations you can look to who are able to drive and extract a great deal of value from leveraging data. So once you see somebody who's doing it and you can see that they're 
you know, able to make better decisions using data, there's an incentive and there's a, you know, there's a sort of a, a pot at the end of the rainbow for making that decision. And, and accompanying with that, I think, you know, every organization, large or small, also has to know that there's a certain degree of control over the data, right? So data that you want to share, you're able to share. And data that you want to protect, you also have the ability to protect. And so really, those two things have to come along hand in hand for most organizations to, to get on board with, with leveraging data. But it, it's not an easy task by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I would say of the you know, of the highest performing organizations I work for or work with, almost all of them have figured out a way to leverage large groups of data to help with decisions. I mean, it is a, it is, it is built into the fabric of those companies. And then of the remainder of the companies I've worked with, it's a top five priority to figure out how to better use data. And so most organizations have, have seen the power of it and are just trying to wrestle through how do you manage control? How do I make sure that I you know, have the right culture around it? And how do I take appropriate actions with it? But I think but having that upfront hesitancy is, is certainly something that you see a lot. So as you talk about control of that data and access to it and, and who gets to see and use and analyze what, I know just enough about blockchain to be dangerous. But is that kind of what blockchain in essence is, is what data gets assimilated and who has access to what portions of that? Yeah, somewhat. So what blockchain's good at is providing a unchangeable record of a set of events. And so I'll use a bad analogy, but if I, if I build a blockchain and across that blockchain, I'm going to enter in some data every time I, I service a vehicle. And uh, so every time that happens, an, an event goes in the blockchain and, and over time you sell that vehicle to another party and, and they, they, you know, they put that service history in and then you sell it to another party. What you have at the end of that in the blockchain is you have an unchanged history or traceability of the events across that entire car. And you don't have to worry about somebody going in right before you buy the car and, and changing that, or you don't have to worry about that data being spread across different locations. You've got you know, an unchanged or immutable record of a history that makes something traceable and it inspires confidence in the outcome. And so, of course, you have a decision before you put data into a blockchain of whether or not you'd want to share it. So there is control, right? You always have that control of whether or not, you know, you'd want to put that in this, in this bad analogy, a, a car service record into the, into the blockchain. But what you do have is once it goes in is an assurance that, that it doesn't change. And so in, in, in blockchain as a, as a concept is getting, I mean, it's, it's fundamentally changing many, many businesses. And I think it's going to be super impactful for the remainder of our lives. Crypto is a good example of, you know, the, the application of blockchain and finance. But I think as we think about livestock, you know, there are many smarter people who will come up with better examples, but, you know, you get the opportunity to, to trace the history of interactions with livestock. And as I start to think about you know, where the public has been going around knowing where their food comes from and having some certainty around where it's produced and, and, and how it got to your table, something like the blockchain would allow that information to be shared with consumers with a high degree of confidence. And so that's something like that is an, an area where I think blockchain could have a, 
a pretty substantial impact in, in things like livestock. You know, you could probably go down the heredity path as well. So, you know, you don't have to worry about paper records for tracking heredity of animals. All that stuff ends up being stored um, forever in an unchangeable way and, and really accessible anywhere, which, which can be pretty powerful once you think about it. Yeah, it, it will be. It is already. And, and we've talked about source verification and traceability and having storied beef and all these different things. But to me, blockchain is the technology that makes that all not just possible, but relatively seamless. I think we as an industry just have to have some pretty good open communications about how how that works, who has access to it. And quite possibly, and you mentioned this before about placing value on this, what is the value of that? And and that's that's a piece that we talked a couple podcasts ago with Jared Gillig from Cargill about what that value is to the consumer of knowing every step that that animal and that beef went down. And so I guess just for a second here, I've been to your beautiful home and seen your outdoor kitchen and grill set up. You're a beef eater, big time. For sure, yeah. And you know you know how to to make one just about as good as the white tablecloth restaurant. What is it worth to Kurt Hogan and his family when he has friends over? What is it worth to know the blockchain of that animal from the time it was born until it showed up in, in your kitchen? And, and just for us in the beef community, what kind of value potentially is there to knowing that this steak, I know everything about that, that steak. All I know is that it weighs two and a half pounds in a white foam package. My lens on this is, is what came through in the intro is probably somewhat skewed based on where I grew up and, and, you know, <laughs> but I, I put huge value in it. You know, when we make individual buying decisions on products out here, you know, where we, where we go to source our meat for the butcher matters a ton. And really when you're, when you're entertaining or when you really take pride in the, in the quality of the meal, or, you know, you want to serve something that you know that you can cook and will, will resonate well, you become more price insensitive, period, right? So there's, there's an opportunity, I think, for premium pricing if you can associate quality and predictability with the product. And so when I think of your description and, you know, things like the blockchain and traceability, I immediately, I think about, you know, finding and understanding where the beef comes from, understanding how the beef is sourced, you know, maybe how the, the animal was raised. And over time, you know, I think people find combinations of those things that work for them, that work for their preferences. And my hypothesis is that they will that they will pay a premium for that. And I think you see it. I think people pay all sorts of premiums for, for other labels right now in the marketplace, whether it's, you know, whether it's grass fed or whether it's Angus raised or whatever the, whatever the the label is, I think we, we can already see examples of, of premium pricing for, you know, for a, a deeper understanding of the, the history and the sourcing of a product uh, like beef. And so I, I think there's a, there's a huge business for that. And I also think it's this whole notion of, of being more connected between the, the producer and their consumer 
is something that's incredibly interesting. I think, you know, the, the trend of understanding where your beef comes from and how it's sourced and a little bit less around the middlemen that were involved, you know, in that process. I think the 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 whole pattern of connecting producers and consumers together more closely is something that really, if you think about Matt, our life the last 10 or 15 years, that pattern's repeated itself a lot, right? Whether it's, you know, buying stuff off of Amazon or 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 using the internet, this whole notion of, you know, close connection of the person that 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 makes the product and the person that consumes the product is is something that just seems to be you know, continue to perpetuate itself. Well, and it's it's almost full circle. I mean, I don't remember the days. It was before our time, but it used to be that everybody, if they didn't raise their own food, they knew the farmer that brought it to the market and either sold it directly to them or sold it to the shopkeeper. The shopkeeper then turned around and traded it to somebody else in, in you know, 200 years ago. And here we are talking about all this efficiency that we've built into food production and and how one and a half percent of the population in U.S. who are farmers and ranchers feed 330 million plus anybody that wants to import U.S. beef or any other products across the globe. We've gotten really good at making large quantities of food in the process we've lost that connection. And um, I don't think we have any idea what the value is in reestablishing that connection. Now, can we afford to go back and be that mom and pop with one milk cow and a few chickens and a couple hogs and and three or four beef? I I don't think so. Mm But if we can use technology and if we can use data and the things that are available to make that connection for us, and that the, and I guess that's another question for you, will the consumer buy that? Will they buy into the notion that because it was documented and entered into this computer in somebody's server, wherever, that you can trust that you know exactly what happened and who raised and where where this beef came from. Is that enough? Or do they want to walk down to that local butcher who tells them a story like you do do now? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting scenario to explore. You know, I don't know. I would speculate the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think there's, as you as you look at all the all the people who are consumers of beef, you, you, you know, they probably divide up into categories. And, and some of those folks, I think, will always want to, you know, saunter on down to the butcher and, and see what the recommendation is. And, you know, there's value that that's added there through, you know, through even like, you know, slicing up the meat or, you know, getting custom cuts for it or getting recommendations on marinades. I think there's a ton of value that can be had through that, that experience with a retail store or butcher. But I also think there's, you know, and you look at other industries, I think, I think there's certainly a segment of folks that would, that would leverage that more direct to consumer model and are more than happy to invest in and in paying a premium for for something that really meets their individual needs. And I think, you know, that's the that last bit is the is the trend that I think drives the value. I mean, I think so much of what's happening now, really driven by the internet, is we can buy things that meet our particular needs, whether it's clothing or whether it's, you know, for, for growing up as an example, you know, I had big feet and try to get basketball shoes, you know, try to find a, <laughs> you know, a pair of 13 and a half basketball shoes 
was a problem. And so you know, what you end up doing, you, you, you bought smaller shoes and got over it and <laughs> toughened up a little bit, you know, we really do have a lot of, things <laughs> right? yeah, but now, I mean, we could, we could flip over to the internet and probably within two days we could have a customized pair shipped to our house. Right. And I think that's all about consumers getting used to, to businesses meeting their specific needs. And, uh, and again, as you describe that whole traceability concept and the connection between the producer and the consumer, I think there's a lot of, a lot of folks who know what they like and would enjoy kind of that, that close connection and the specificity of, of that experience. And, and I think there's, you know, lots of other businesses that, that aren't ag related that, that really focus on just doing that. Well, that's going to drive things I think in the future. And, and I could, I can talk about marketing all day long. It's, it, it's intriguing to me. It's exciting to me. It, it's frustrating to me right now. But within the beef community, we're having these knockdown, drag out fights about how we should or shouldn't sell cattle. When the more I think and talk to folks like you and others about this notion, it may not be that we need to hearken back to the ways that we traded cattle 30 years ago. We may have to look at some things like you're talking about and ask the consumer, what what is it worth for you to know every step along the way where this animal was? Or for us to use some kind of a technology that offers you that access to certain things. Now, obviously, there's some liability involved and things like that that we've got to, as a beef community, figure out and sort through. But that may be the next horizon of, of premiums, if you will, of value. Um, is is placing it on that, and so going forth, that I think that's part of that discussion. Well, I think that's a, I think it's a great observation, and the the part that resonates especially strongly with me is this whole notion that you suggested of starting with where the value is. So you know, figure out what consumers want and and what they're willing to pay more for, and then work backwards from that. Uh, I think that's that's one of the techniques that that I've often used with, with businesses who are trying to change, right? You'll, you'll oftentimes see organizations who will, who will feel like they need to use technology for technology's sake. Like, man, I need to, I need to move my business to the cloud, or I got to find a way to implement blockchain because my board of directors said, you know, blockchain is going to change the world. (laughs) Right. And, and in many of those instances, it's technology for technology's sake. And oftentimes it's a waste. Uh, it's a waste. It's confusing. It, it actually lowers performance. But, you know, we found if you can anchor around the value and really spend that time up front and, you know, sort of measure twice and cut once, but identify that value and then work backwards, it really helps you simplify the problem. And again, in, in beef, maybe that's, you know, understanding where the value sits. And, you know, maybe there's, there's, some regional models that make sense that are sort of more standardized than mom and pop with a cow out in the, in the yard, but maybe less, you know, maybe, maybe less uh, sophisticated than a, a national distribution network, right? There might be some, some models in between that better serve the consumer and, and also put the producer closer to the, closer to the value. So I, I think your idea is an awesome one. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. And I think, as you said, that the answer is going to be somewhere in between those extremes. And, and I think that uh, that generally is the case. But I think especially in this one, that when we're dealing with, with a very diverse population of consumers who don't all want the same thing, and we prove every day just how diverse our producer segments are. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch. 
So, Kurt, what would you say for folks who have so much anxiety about giving up this data and saying, you know, I don't want the liability. I don't want somebody knowing where this pound of meat or beef came from. I don't want them to be able to come back and sue me or whatever the case may be. Are there places where there are some controls there? And, and if so, how does that work? Right. No, it's, I think you hit the key word there. I think there's, there's two things that you see with the sharing of data broadly. And, and one of them is control and, and one of them is, is around value. And I'll, I'll hit them kind of one after the other. And, and in your example, like most of the organizations I work with first want to understand if they've got control of the data. And so if I've got data on my herd, then that data stays with me. And oftentimes then people can be comfortable. If, hey, I'm the only one looking at that data, that, that works just fine. And then there's also a, a choice point that said, listen, if I want to share that data more broadly, what oftentimes happens in other industries is that data gets anonymized. And so instead of this data being reflective to, you know, a cow in, in Matt's herd, it's just you know a cow, um, a generic cow of a, of, a, of a certain of a certain breed in a certain location. And so once you strip out that individual information, sometimes that makes sense to share that data more broadly. But really, the the reason people decide to do that is almost always connected to value, and it's important because as we talked about earlier, like like oil, data has value. And so I would never advocate for you know, for anyone or any organization to collect a bunch of data and then just distribute that data indiscriminately, right? Because because it's got value. And so if I'm going to share that data more, more broadly, there needs to be value that comes back to me. And what I've seen is as long as that happens, then uh, if I've got control and I, I can have a control over the, the privacy aspect of that data, but I share it more broadly and I get value back, that ends up being the unlock for the whole ecosystem. And again, an example is if I can share some generic data about about my herd back to another organization, and and they combine that data with, you know, herds across the world or a certain breeds across the world, and they can provide me back with specific recommendations or insights that help me grow my business, then that's a fair exchange of value. And who knows what that insight is? Maybe it's Maybe it's, you know, protein and nutrition information. Maybe it's, you know, uh, maybe it's environmental sort of data. I, I don't know what those examples would be. But in business, the, the whole unlock to people sharing data is the fact that when you share data, you can also get insights back from other people who share data that are of value. And you can control the, the most private aspects that are unique to your business. And so I, I would I would imagine that that would evolve the same way with livestock producers as well. I mean, nobody certainly wants to to share any aspect of the secret sauce externally, but but sharing some subset of information with the rest of the world so that you can you know you can produce a, a better herd and a higher quality product is something that I think people will consider over time. And that would be something that you would negotiate probably before you either entered into that business arrangement or signed on with that company to use their services or whatever the case may be. So it would be something up front that everybody would have an understanding of what was theirs, what was ours, and what was just mine. And it's a fundamental part of business transactions today. In fact, one of the organizations I'm working with right now there is a separate agreement focused on data privacy and protection. It's a, it's a whole 
legal uh, and contractual section to address exactly what you just said, Matt, because, because data very clearly has value and people want to make sure that they've got the right controls. So yes, that's absolutely something that you, you work on up front. So if my kids aren't going to get their computer science degree, they better go to law school, it sounds like. <laughs> That's true. Uh, one, or, or, one or both of those are going to rule everything. They'll play a role or, <laughs> you know, I, uh, maybe maybe data science is a, is a spot they can go into uh, as well. That's not so bad. Or, or, or math. Those will always uh, have a role as well. You don't think math is going away? Oh, no way. <laughs> no, logical sequential pattern thought. Like it's, it's the foundation of problem solving. So I think Pre- it's going to be here for the long haul. Pretty much everything we do, I'd say. Absolutely. So as we talk about still on the tech front and reliance on technology and data capture, um, there are a lot of technologies within agriculture and probably more so in row crop farming, honestly, than there have been as the production of beef cattle. But still, there's a lot of technology that's out there some of which has been implemented, some of which still is trying to get over the hump of either usefulness Mm -hmm. and pastures across the the nation, which are, again, very diverse. Some, it's just getting past the tradition. You know, I think of of something like virtual fence. Not a lot of use. I did go to a field day earlier up at the mush rushes uh, that that was using one of these products, and I think there's a lot of, of potential. But things like that, I mean, how familiar are you with those types of technologies? Have you seen that used in, in agriculture, or what do you think on those? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different categories of, of data that your example reminds me of. And I, I think one of them is the tagging of cattle, the biometric data. You use the right term, and you know if you sort of step back in the life cycle of, of what I see organizations doing, there's really there's kind of three big steps associated with data. Number one is around collection of data. And so getting sensors out there to, to generate data. And then there's the transport or communication of data. And then and then oftentimes there's a third step, which is kind of aggregating it together and then refining the data. And the, the analogy that gets used a lot in, in my world is, you know, people talk about data is the new oil, right? It's a spectacular natural resource. But like a natural resource, it's it's got to go through multiple steps before it can drive value. And you know that first step is you have to be able to collect it. I'm just like you'd you'd pull it out of the uh, with an oil well. You have to transport that data or communicate the data. And then the third step is you you know you got to refine it. Or just like an oil in a refinery, you have to you know you take it and you process it before it can add value. And so you know the example that you bring up, I think there's going to be and continues to be a ton of investment around data collection. You know, the the tagging, the just the, the value of understanding what's happening on an individual basis with any, you know, with any person. Like, you know, you see it with our mobile phones. Our mobile phones are, are basically a biometric tag and a tag for all of us. And, you know, there's a lot of data that's generated through our mobile phone. And given, I don't think there's going to be cows carrying around mobile phones anytime soon. I think the idea of a biometric tag or, you know, or something that's able to capture individual data about that animal is, uh, I think it's inevitable. And I think that as part of that, there's certainly value that can be gained from it. You know, things like cattle location, as you mentioned, the the general health of the cow, all that sort of stuff. I think, I think those are quite obvious and, and use cases that are going to come along. And I, and I think the reason they'll advance pretty quickly is because back to our point, those sorts of things 
drive a lot of value. And so if I, if I think about how much time I spent as a kid going and checking the cattle, you know, driving all of Saturday and half of Sunday to different pastures to count the cows and try to see which ones are sick. You can imagine if I can get, you know, more precise around that and understand the, you know, the health of the herd and the location of the herd in advance, then I basically only have to drive out there when there's something wrong or heaven forbid, I can actually predict sometimes when there's something wrong and, and proactively help an animal out before they get too terribly sick. And so the big lever in that, you know, in that example is, maybe the most important one, which is time, right? And as an entrepreneur, that's that's probably the most valuable commodity. And so I think things like sensors and deployment of sensors, I think we're going to see it in livestock. As you mentioned, I think you're going to see it and do see it with all forms of, of farming, you know, the whole precision agriculture movement. So I think that sensor deployment, you're going to continue to see more and more of it. To me, the game changer for, for really ag is in that second step. So once you get a bunch of sensors out there, you can continue to deploy those. Those sensors over time need to talk to something and they need to be able to communicate. And and so for, for an internet company, that's easy because if I've got a bunch of sensors, I'm monitoring a website, maybe I'm monitoring a retail store and all that's connected with a, with a network. So all that information kind of comes to one spot. But in our scenarios with our, you know, with our with our farm businesses and ranching businesses, that data may may be collected on an animal, but but communicating it back is a challenge. And you know it's the same challenge that large industrial companies have. Places like GE, when they've got oil rigs everywhere across the world, and they want to monitor those, right? You know, there's there's not there's not coverage in all those areas. And so I think the next big <clears throat> You know, the next big focused area in ag is going to be around um, communication networks. So upgrade of, I think we're going through an upgrade of 3G to 4G to 5G right now, cross telephony networks. You probably read a lot about investment in satellite technology. Uh, I think the quicker we can get all of those areas connected to a, to a network, you're going to allow all that information to flow to one spot. And as a, as a rancher, then you know, I can know real time what's happening with my herd and with all of the data that's being collected from these sensors. And then that unlocks the ability to start to look at kind of large data sets and to start to do some really cool things with them, like start to predict, you know, predict what, what the herd's going to do, predict health patterns, you know, predict changes in the, in the weather that, you know, that, or no, you can't predict changes in the weather, but pr- predict how changes in the weather can impact the herd. Like that's where the whole big data concept comes in. So I know it's kind of a long run into your question, but I, I think that that whole data collection and sensor piece is just the tip of the iceberg. As you start to connect that data into centralized systems, then I think the ranchers are going to see a, a tremendous uptick in the value that they can get from, you know, from looking at those data sets in a, in a large way. I can already sense how many folks bouncing around in their pickup listening to this podcast or horseback or, or wherever they might be moving around in that seat a lot as they think about somebody besides them and something besides them being able to pull that calf who's sick or is going to be sick in a day or two um, before we, the best pen rider that's ever been on a horse, could even begin to see it. And, And that's something that, and there's technologies currently that are out there uh, they just haven't seen widespread use yet, and, and there's some imperfections in terms of, of delivering those and the sensors and the, the costs and things like that. But what you brought up 
that is maybe the next biggest stumbling block is that communication network. And and that's been something that, that Amy and I have, have fought for for the last 18, 20 years that we've lived here in, in Greenwood County. And that is decent connectivity to rural America, whether it be through satellites or whether it be through the mobile phone, cellular type network. And I think that wireless of some kind, whether it be satellite or, or radio frequency or whatever, coverage is is the best. But we still don't have enough towers to get connectivity to most of the places where we need connectivity, where these cows go down into a valley and, and completely fall off the radar, literally. So, you know, the, there's a lot of steps that somehow are going to have to be funded before we even consider paying X dollars per sensor to, to put in these cows or calves ears or whatever the case may be. Every time I hear folks get excited about going from, you know, let's go way back, dial up to DSL, sure. DSL to, to cable or fiber internet, fiber to Google fiber, and instead of just being 100 megabits per second, being a 1,000 or a gig or whatever, I just kind of chuckle because that's another several hundred million dollars that got invested into technology that made an incremental change for people, but didn't make one bit of change for those of us in rural America. And that's a tough thing to get across to people when it's not how fast is my internet, it is do I have access to any internet at all because I don't have a cell phone signal or satellite doesn't work when there's clouds or, and maybe Elon is going to fix all this with Starlink. I, mm. I, I haven't seen it yet, but, but yeah, it's a big deal. It is a huge deal when we talk about that. And it's not just in terms of the ability to, to use things for cattle management. It's again, we go back to educating kids. It's the opportunities that, that rural youth have and, and things like that. So I may have digressed there, but I always put that plug out there whenever t somebody talks about communication networks. Well, if I, if I can if I can pile on a little bit, I mean, it's something that I'm I'm passionate about. As I hear us talk about as a nation investing in infrastructure, you know, I know that there's calculations around the return on infrastructure and things like bridges and roads, and you know, for every dollar you invest, there's a certain amount of return. My mind always goes to communications and and you know internet infrastructure and wireless infrastructure as the roads and the bridges of our generation. Like as I look at at what the public sector can do to drive massive change in value to to rural areas, I I, I struggle to find anything that's higher on the list. Yeah. And I and I think you know you hit upon a number of the key components, right? So there's there's dimensions which help business. So for example, you know, just allowing communication coverage across rural areas is going to allow things like sensors to be deployed and data to be collected to the extent that the farmer and rancher wants that to happen, right? So it's a it's a huge unlock for steps like that. But but the other element that you talked about is is really, you know, supporting the development, the agricultural development and really the whole life cycle of people going into ag, living in rural areas, being able to have you know, internet connectivity, and even even things that I think became more prominent here in the last two years, you know, things like working remotely. I, I know the pandemic caused a, a ton of pain for a lot of people across the world, and, and I certainly acknowledge that, but maybe one of the silver linings is that to the extent you can get internet coverage, 
we're now in a, a world where businesses are far more accepting of, of people working from wherever they want to work. And so my mind quickly goes to rural communities and thinking, you know, could you, could you more feasibly have a spouse that has a job today and is able to connect on the internet where before that might not have been possible because they would have been expected to be in an office or they're in a rural location and, you know, it's not feasible to drive. So I'm hopeful that the events of the, of the past couple of years really shows the value of allowing people to work from where they live and live from where they want and, and to shine a brighter light on the importance of having great connectivity for everyone, right? Whether that's for schooling or education or, or healthcare or things like what we talked about before, business scenarios where, you know, you're better connected to your, to your livelihood and your, your, your crop and your animals and you're able to make better decisions. I mean, I think all of those things kind of go back to this fundamental infrastructure need, which is widespread communication. In North America, I think we're probably going to be ahead of a lot of the world in this. I mean, there's lots of places in the world that are, that are further behind than us, but I think there's certainly opportunity for us to, to take a big step forward in that way. The infrastructure of our generation, I think, is what you called it. And I, I have heard that alluded to, but I don't know if I've ever heard it put into that term. And, and that drives it home about as well as, as anybody or anything could. And, and, yeah, I mean, there's just, you name it, whether we like it or not, the interconnected nature of today's world, I don't think we're going back. We may recognize and we may appreciate more those personal communication opportunities and those times when we actually get to sit down and share a steak and, and visit. But in terms of doing business, working within a supply chain, being educated, I, I don't think that we put this genie back in the bottle. And so without that high-speed internet, that access to, to communications networks, um, yeah, we rural folks always have kind of looked been been viewed as being a little behind the times and being a little backward and and maybe it's justified and and sometimes we take take a little pride in it i think but without the ability to learn and to do business and to access information and and transmit data everything we've been talking about that without that yeah we truly will be looked down upon as being backwards, not because we want to, but because we don't have any other choice. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's critical, I think, as we go forward. So maybe we can share this with somebody in DC or with a private entity that, that sees the need and, and can help us in that regard. Yeah, I think it'll go the right direction, but you're, you're right in that some of these problems do need some public help. I mean, I, I'm a fan of solving as much of, of these things as we can through private enterprise. But, you know, but if you think back to the Rural Electrification Act, you know, that was, that was a big deal in its time and it, it was life-changing for rural communities and, you know, and changed the way of life and the level of prosperity for, for really a large portion of the, the country. And I, I look at this in the same way. I think it's, I think it's table stakes for what we, we need to do. And, and again, I, I think the, the, it allows us to, it allows us to stay better connected, I think, as a, as a community, right? And whether that connection, again, is to my individual business or if it's to, you know, the other kids in the league school or if it's to an, an organization in another country, right? Right now, the, the internet is the vehicle for that. And, and so the more we can invest in that, the better. I would agree. All right, we're going to change gears again here, Kurt. Let's talk labor. 
and efficiency of labor and how technology can help us in that regard. I think there are a lot of places within the beef industry that we already see AI and robots and things like that coming into play, probably very rapidly, more rapidly than many of us cowboys even realize or want to admit. But most of those are way on up the chain or down the chain from us, and and we're looking at retailers, transportation issues and things like that as they ship meat and, and, and beef products and maybe even packer processors implementing more AI and robotics. Do you see ways that there can be some increases in efficiency of labor at the ranch level using automation? Again, we talk about how every ranch is different. There's not this cookie cutter approach. I don't know that we're going to see in my lifetime a robot learn to go and feed cows on a three-section pasture, but maybe that's possible. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's something we can we can sort of talk about out loud. Nothing jumps to mind as imminent, first of all. Probably good. Affili- <laughs> There'd be a livestock. lot of us that said. Like, like farming, I see it, especially in, in, in where I live. I, just a quick aside, like the the application of robotics and mechanical innovation to farming, I think, is it's coming. I was in a discussion with a friend a year ago, and we were we were looking at a robot that would basically go through rows and use AI, visual AI, to be able to to, to effectively harvest apples, right? And so it had a vacuum, it had some some camera sensors and a little suction tube, and it got good at rolling up and down the rows and picking apples. Uh, and it was an interesting collection of mechanical innovation and software, but it was invested in and it was a focus area because effectively, if that robot's not doing it, you're, you're hiring a, a bunch of individuals to go do that. And, and, and so you're displacing a lot of manual work. So those are the situations where I see that mechanical advantage really kind of coming into play. And as you, as you mentioned, like, you know, no immediate examples come to mind. I'm sure they're there, but any place where there's repeatable tasks and a lot of manual work involved, then, you know, I think over time, those will be, those will be candidates, but probably, but probably further out. I mean, the sort of mechanical robotic elements that I see probably in the near future are, are probably back to our other discussion around data collection and, and specifically things like drones. You know, I, I see and have a number of friends here who are deeply invested in a variety of drone technologies, everything from aircraft to ship medicine to sort of underdeveloped places of the world to to doing crop scanning, just basically about any use case you can think about of, of having something cost effective that flies over and retrieves information. And so I think I think you'll see that first. And maybe that's a way to again check on herds to you know to, to cover a, a broad geographic area and collect data. But I think the robotics piece might be second, but you know, I'd have to talk through, you know, what the daily tasks are and, and brainstorm it a bit. But nothing comes to mind. Of course, yeah. now the automation of you know the sort of self-driving technology, I do believe that's that's going to continue to evolve. And so, again, probably a little bit more applicable to to farming. But you can't drive three blocks away from where I live without seeing one and probably two or three vehicles that are that are being trained to be fully autonomous. And, you know, right down the road, there's a, a trucking company that's doing the same thing. And so there is just massive investment in the automation of transportation, which which is, you know, sort of an indirect contributor to, to what you talked about. Wow. That's, I mean, I, I read about these things. I hear about these things. I've seen one 
autonomous car that kind of freaked me out. I think it was a taxi. I don't even remember now where we were, but that's that's hard to even imagine. But hey, they don't call it the Silicon Valley for nothing. No, and it's funny. Back to the other point. Really, all those things are doing right now is they're driving around and they're collecting data, right? Because the more data they get, they can bring that data together and then and then they can uh, recognize patterns and then they can they can train those vehicles to to drive with better precision. And so, back to our other point, you know, all of these businesses have have decided that collecting large amounts of data and then being able to make decisions like how to drive a car with that data has value. It's just another example of of these these vehicles driving around in data collection mode. And with that statement, Kurt Hogan, you just weirded out everybody that was listening to this. And if they were considering adopting any of this technology, they're like, no, I'm done. I, I knew it wasn't for me. Uh, it's probably a wise decision right now. Yeah, well, I'm, not, I'm not jumping in any self-driving cars anytime soon. I've, uh, yeah. I've coded too many computer bugs in my history. So I'm going <laughs> to let somebody else do that here for, for quite some time. Well, you said at the beginning of the podcast that you just kind of go to where the problems are. So it sounds to me like this is job security for, for anybody in your line of work, because there, there could be lots of problems as we, as we see more and more. Although I, I got the opportunity to ride to and from town today with my 14-year-old who is on her learner's permit and is still in the experience phase. And I don't know, an autonomous car didn't look quite so bad there at a couple points as I was riding back from Eureka. Oh, I can imagine. That's probably why I've had the same experience with my 16-year-old. So we need to have them hang out and, and maybe my, my 16-year-old can pick up something. But, but I think on the other point, like the, the one thing I can say is, you know, as a kid growing up on a farm and, and now living in the crazy area of Silicon Valley, as much as I can reinforce this and I do with my parents is that, you know, this technology might seem scary or this whole idea of data sharing might seem scary, but there, you know, there's plenty of controls around this. And, and at the end, people are in control of all of this right now. And so, you know, I think that some of these things are, are kind of out there and, and some of them are, some of them are easy to adopt, like the way we use our phones every day. So I, I've just encouraged people to have an open mind towards it. And, you know, it's fine to be a little bit cynical, but also kind of watch towards the new things coming out because there's really some, some really life-changing advancements that that pop out more quickly than you think and so you know they they can add a lot of value if you're if you're able to identify them and apply them to your business and then we talk about new technology and our family and so many others like ours in, in animal agriculture and in ranching have a rich tradition and we're very proud of everything that we've done and and sometimes we almost wish we were back in the good old days but we think of what I would call a very time-tested basic necessity on most ranches would be a horse and a saddle or a pickup. And if we go back far enough, that saddle was a new technology. Mm -hmm. They went from riding one bareback to having this wooden tree with leather and things that allowed you to do things that you couldn't do when you were just riding them with nothing but a fistful of mane. Same way with a pickup. I mean, a pickup isn't a new technology. Well, it darn sure was 100 years ago, 75 years ago even. So we either adapt or 
we don't continue in most of these businesses. And that doesn't mean we just close our eyes and, and forget everything that we've learned up to this point. But yeah, a, a common sense adoption of some of these technologies, I think, could, could help all of us. Oh, for sure. And if I even think back at, at you know, my experience with my parents and our farm, you know, growing up, it took five kids and a small marching army with an old <laughs> 95 combine and, you know, and uh, a couple trucks to, to run a, a family farm. And over time, the kids got older and, and some, you know, we still came back for harvest for a while, but, you know, the, the labor force dwindled and fast forward to, you know, a couple years ago and, and mom and dad, my uncle are, you know, still farming, producing as much or more than they ever were when I was around with a fraction of the people. And that's largely driven by their adoption of, of technology, right? Mechanical technology in their example, but it's really allowed them to produce more and maintain a style of life and, and have a way of living. And, and all of that's by being open-minded and trying new things. And also kind of continuing to do what they do best, preserve the culture of the farm, work hard, live their values. And so that combination, I think, can be pretty powerful. I would echo that. And I'm in the midst of, and I think I mentioned it. In fact, I heard about this book on a previous podcast uh, that Sean Tiffany told me about. But um, a book called The End of the World is Just Beginning. And as some of the things that he talks about in this book in terms of labor specifically, and the lack of labor coming forward, not just people who want to work, but people, period. Uh, as we look across the population trends, not quite as much in the United States, but especially globally, there simply aren't going to be enough people to do the work if we don't adopt some of these technologies and, and find ways to, to do more with less. And so, yeah, that's, that's one of those long-term trends that we, we have to consider. Well, and I think... You know, even in the past six or eight, 10 years, we've gone through maybe a fear cycle of the robots are going to take over the world, all right? And we're going to have a Terminator scenario and where are all the jobs going to go? And then you fast forward to 2020 and we look around and there's not enough people to do the work even right now. Part of that's pandemic induced. Part of that's the great resignation, you know, people deciding they, they want to do something different. But any way that you slice it, we have way too little labor to accomplish what we need to as a society. And all of us see it show up in every every one of our daily lives. I mean, look at the supply chain disruption that's happened really almost continuously for the last 24 months. The, the lack of consistent labor across the globe has been extremely disruptive. And so I just think it, it puts an exclamation point on what you just said, Matt, and that, you know, we're we're going to a going to a world where we we need more we need more support and I think we can we can look around us here in the last you know twelve to twenty four months and all of us can probably identify three or four examples where that's impacted us directly. And it doesn't show any signs of stopping anytime soon. So I would say that it's here to stay for at least the the near term. Well, Kurt, I really appreciate you visiting with us today. I don't usually make too many predictions, but uh, I think this is going to be one of those podcasts that folks really, really appreciate, and there would be a pretty high likelihood that you may get asked to come back and tackle the rest of this outline that you and I kind of thought through ahead of time, That most of which we didn't even get to. But uh, we really appreciate your time. Please 
don't be a stranger. Tell Kate and the kids hello, and we wish you all the best as you start school this year. Uh, please do the same with, with Amy and your family, and thanks for having me. I, I love the topic and would be happy to talk about it more anytime. Sounds great. Thanks a bunch, Kurt. Take care. Thanks for joining us for Practically Ranching, brought to you by Dale Banks Angus. If you enjoyed the podcast, heck, even if you didn't, help us improve by leaving a comment with your review wherever you heard us. And if you want to listen again, click subscribe and catch us next week. God bless, and we look forward to visiting again soon. Music